I don't know if I'm weird. I, I know I'm weird, uh, but I don't know if I'm weird in, in this specific affection in my heart, but I love college campuses. You're like, well, you're a college pastor, so that makes sense. But like, not like, I could care less about you students. Um, but like college campuses, like going and visiting other schools, like I, just, I get really nerded out about it. I hate Facebook, um, and I hate everything that people post on Facebook. And if someone posts like, you'll never believe what happened, I have never clicked that. But if it's like, you'll never believe how beautiful these college campuses are, I've never not clicked that. Um, and like whenever they give lists of the top most beautiful campuses in America, we're always on there, so that's good. Um, but uh, I love looking at them. I love to see the history, the architecture, the green space, the football stadiums. Um, I, I even like, I, I just love looking at other people's football stadiums. I'm weird, okay? And I get it, and I love it. And a couple years ago, um, I got to spend some time on the campus of Michigan State University, um, which is one of the largest land area campuses in the US. Um, and Luke was there with me, and we spent a couple days walking around campus. We walked that campus so many times in so many different places. And like everywhere we went, I was just amazed at like, it's not as beautiful as ours, because nothing's as beautiful as ours, but it was neat. I mean, it's in Michigan, so how it's like Michigan, Montana. It's not very close, um, but I loved it, and, and so I was excited because Sarah and I were there uh, for summer project, which you guys will be hearing more about, and we'd love to see you guys on this summer, um, and we were there uh, in East Lansing, and I was so excited to go show this campus to Sarah, um, and I was very disappointed because she wasn't as excited about it as I was because she doesn't care this affection carry this affection for college campuses. But then it ulti ultimately ended up being that we were crunched for time. We didn't have much time, so we just drove by campus. We just drove uh, like straight by, and she saw the football stadium, and she saw the clock tower thing. Um, but, but she didn't have the same experience with the campus as I did. And the issue here, the issue with experiences, it's a prepositional thing, okay? It has to do with prepositions. And when I, I took Greek this last summer, um, and when you learn Greek, you're really just learning how you don't know English. Um, because when, and maybe those of you who have learned languages realize when you take your first language class, you're like, I never knew my first language. Um, and the thing that really was hardest for me in Greek was their prepositions. Prepositions are words um, which communicate your relationship to things, like under, over, on top of, beside, by, those type of words. And then they're all over in Greek, and they have these charts that help you map them out. Um, and, and this example of the MSU campus proves how important prepositions are to our understanding of things. We both had totally different experiences with this campus because Sarah drove by the campus while I passed through the campus. And so she, she drove alongside of it where I went through it. And this theme of, of being beside something or being brought through something is actually a really important theme in our text tonight in the book of Mark. And what we're going to see in the book of Mark um, is that we can know Jesus by his actions. We can know Jesus by his actions, but we can only understand Jesus through his actions. So we can know Jesus by his actions, but we can only understand Jesus through his actions. And those prepositions, by and through, are very important for us because they communicate our relationship with something. So before we get into that, uh, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we've prayed much already tonight. I think this is the third prayer uh, we've given, but we pray because we are 
in need of your grace. We are in need of your mercy. We realize um, how weak we are and how strong and merciful you are. So we ask that you are gracious to us tonight, Lord. We ask that you speak mightily through your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit convicts us and, and spurs us to repent and to worship and to believe and to uh, serve but Lord, more importantly, we want to be a people grateful for what Jesus has done on the cross. So grant us that ability to experience you rightly. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going through the book of Mark. Um, and you've heard me say this a lot as we're going through the gospel of Mark. Mark intentionally, as he wrote this book, left out. And you guys probably know where I'm going with this because I've said it a lot. Um, he left out a lot of Jesus' teaching. Out of the majority of the Gospels, Mark includes the least amount of Jesus' teaching and includes the most about Jesus' action, what Jesus is doing. And that's because rather than telling us who Jesus is, Mark wants to show us who Jesus is. And Jesus' actions are very important, aren't they? In fact, without action, we'd never know God. Think about it. Without action, we would not be able to know God. You see, God, if God existed but never chose to act, if God existed and he never chose to act among us or towards us, we would be completely unaware of him, wouldn't we? God has always existed as something separate from us. He's existed in eternity, in the heavens, in triune, and that means triune is a reference to the Trinity, meaning God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He existed in triune relationship, which means... God didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was desperate for affection, like someone who got left out of senior prom and they're just like, well, no one wants to play with me, so I'm going to make a world of people who need me. God existed in perfect relationship for all eternity. He didn't have to create. He didn't have to move. He was a self-contained ball of awesomeness and would have been completely content by himself in perfection for all eternity, and he could have stayed that way. He could have. He would have been right. He would have been pure. He would have been equally as God as he is now. But he didn't. God created. God acted. He orchestrated. He planned. He wrote. And the only way we as people know God is through his actions in history and his actions in the recording of history. His actions in writing and giving us the Bible. And not only does God act, but God is acting his will. He accomplishes his purpose through his actions. So when we look at the Bible, we're not just looking at stories for little kids that teach us moral lessons. They're not, these, are, these things that the Bible contains, these actions of God, are important revelations of who God is. They're important revelations and the unfolding of his perfect plan. And we should take heed of how God has acted in the past. And in these stories we're going to look at tonight in the book of Mark, we're going to see that the current audience of Jesus' work, so the people who are around Jesus while he's acting, um, they're really bad at picking up the subtle clues that Jesus is giving them. And they're bad at the subtle clues. They're even worse at the blatant clues. They just don't understand it. And what we're going to see in the text tonight, there are three wrong views of Jesus that people see Jesus' action and they come to a wrong conclusion of it. And these wrong views happen because while they can see Jesus by his actions, they're not fully capable of understanding Jesus. 
there's still this bridge that we see in understanding. And so Mark's going to help us understand how it is we are to know Jesus. And we see this first, the first wrong view of Jesus we see in Mark 6, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Okay, a really short, odd sentence in the flow of Mark, but we have to, we have to remember something here. And the construction of the sentence was really urgent. Immediately, he made the disciples get into a boat and go to the other side of the sea. In fact, literally, the, the text says, immediately, post-haste, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go away. Why this urgency? <laughs> right? Isn't Jesus like, like uh, Whitefish Mountain up North has this statue of Jesus where he's just like, hey, like he's on the ski hill and people go and see him. It's just like chill Jesus, chill Jesus sitting on a mountain. Jesus isn't very chill here. He's getting his disciples out of this place fast. Why is that? Well, last week, those of you who were with us, Jesse Kemp preached and he preached on the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus fed these 5,000 people. Um, and what did the people want to do after Jesus fed them? He showed us this in Mark, or John chapter 6, when the people saw the sign, that's the feeding, Jesus took, took loaves and fish and fed 5,000 men. Um, when they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, so all these people, up to 20, is 5,000 men, so a crowd of potentially 20,000 people all at one time made this realization. This is the prophet. You see, these guys were Jews who were gathered to hear Jesus preach. And in the Old Testament, which is the bigger portion of your Bible, it's the story of these, these people who are hearing this prophecy of this king who's going to come. Of this Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. And they were waiting for him because he was going to be a king. And he was going to establish them as a people. And he was going to rule them. And he was going to gather them. And he was going to create a powerful nation. That was what the Old Testament prophesied. And the current people, these Jews, this group of people, are under Roman rule. They're like lesser citizens. They're not Roman, but Rome lets them live and gives them kind of a little bit of liberty. And so when they put this together, those 20,000 people turned into a pretty enthusiastic mob pretty quick. For thousands of years, they've been waiting for this guy, and now he's here. The point is, this isn't a random coincidence that the Jews came to this. This isn't a random conclusion. This is the Jews looking at the Old Testament and being like, that's him. That's the prophet. That's the prophet who will be king. And while they were right in recognizing Jesus as the true prophet of the Old Testament, they were wrong in understanding him. They had a wrong understanding of who it was the Old Testament spoke about because they were trying to take him away by force and like use him as a superhero against the gates of Rome. They're like, we got our king. Let's go give you your robo-king armor. Let's storm Rome. Let's take the capital, like Hunger Games style happening all up in there. Um, and, and Jesus is like, we need to go <laughs> because that's not the kind of king Jesus was. That's not why Jesus came. By his actions, they were able to know Jesus, but they were unable to truly understand him. And so Jesus, with much urgency, sends his disciples away. Why? Because you guys will see this weekend at the Grizz game, 
that people tend to get excited more when groups are around. I guarantee you, at the Grizz game, there are not 27,000 people who are super-duper passionate about hating the Bobcats. But I guarantee you, on Saturday, there'll be some random girl who really doesn't know anything besides this team is blue and yellow that we're playing, who will be, like, violently spewing profanity and hatred at the Bobcats. Why? Because everyone else around is doing it. And so Jesus knows this, and these are people he chose, these are his disciples, and he's like, you guys got to go, because you're already excited that I'm your friend, and now you guys are going to lead this coup, just leave. You don't need to see this excitement. This isn't for you. So he, he boots them out onto the lake. But this is the first misunderstanding. The people who wanted Jesus to be their kind of king had a wrong view of Jesus, because they thought that Jesus was there to bring them fame and fortune in this earthly world. They thought that Jesus was this genie in a bottle who would come to grant them peace and prosperity and riches and accolades and fame. But that's not the reason Jesus came. That's not the reason that Jesus is king. So this is the first wrong view. Jesus is a different sort of king. The second wrong view comes in this very famous story that you guys have probably heard starting in Mark 6 verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, so that's Jesus, he's dismissing the crowd, he's getting them out of there, he's, he's like, guys, no, I'm not going to punch the emperor in the face right now, go. And so Jesus is like burdened by this, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat, that's where the disciples were, was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. That, that's like the funniest line in this whole text. Jesus was just, he, he didn't even want them to see him. He's like, I'm just getting to the other side. Um, that's funny to me. Uh, maybe you'll laugh later. Uh, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So, so here we have Jesus. It's late. It's like about 3 to 6 in the morning. He's had a long day. He's been, he's been teaching. He's been feeding. He's been praying. Um, and and he, he looks around, and he's like, ah, there are my guys out there on the lake. Here I am needing to be where they are. So naturally, straight, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So he's like, I'll just walk across the water. Um, and, and, and I'm not going to go into detail here because I did this a little bit when we looked at Jesus calming the storm earlier in Mark. Biblically, we see the only person who has authority over the sea is God. God tells man to subdue the earth and to fill it, but since the fall, since sin entered the world, the sea is a place of uncertainty. The sea is a place where man can plan and man can try and man can sail, but man can't control the sea. Yet we see passages of God controlling the sea, calming the sea. In the Old Testament, we see prophecies of God walking on the sea. So why does Jesus walk on the sea? Because God walks on the sea. God controls the sea. God calms the sea. Jesus walked on the sea because Jesus is God, and he doesn't need to walk around the sea. And so, so he goes, and, and there's a great storm happening. 
Okay? And so it's not this peaceful thing that Jesus is like prancing across like a, a pool. There's a storm happening. And Mark goes out of his way to say the disciples in the boat, and normally it takes like three or four hours to get across this lake. And here they've been on it for like eight to nine hours, and they're only halfway through it. And he says, painfully making headway for the wind was great. And so these disciples are out there. They're like straining with the oars. And it's not like Jesus went to the nearest accounting firm and got disciples. The majority of his disciples were what? Fishermen. They knew the sea. They knew how to sail. They spent their lives in boats. And they're painfully making headway against this. And they're standing there and they're not, or they're not standing. They're sitting, whatever you do in a boat. Um, and they're rowing and they're just getting nowhere. They're barely keeping their ground in the force of the wind. And the disciples look out. It says they all saw it, and there's this thing just strolling across the sea in the middle of a storm, and they're terrified, and they scream, it's a ghost. Now, this is funny, because liberal scholars who want to discredit the Bible look at this passage, and they're like, ah, 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 you see why all these these first century Jews who wrote the Gospels, you see why they believe it? You see why they talk about Jesus' miracles and Jesus' power? It's because it was a very superstitious society. They, they believe in ghosts. So they would then make sense that they would elaborate on these, these possible uh, things that did happen, but maybe had a more scientific explanation. And they're very superstitious. And so because the disciples thought this man was a ghost, clearly these disciples are idiots and we shouldn't believe anything the Bible says. Really. So you're telling me if you were on a lake in the middle of a storm and you saw a person walking on the water, your first reaction would be, definitely a dude. No! <laughs> Why do disciples say this is a ghost? Not because they're superstitious, because they're not superstitious. People don't do that. People don't just stroll across the water. And these guys, so these guys, these guys who know the sea, who know the lake, who know men don't walk on water, they're like, that's a ghost, that's something, that's not man. That is clearly something different than us, that's clearly something other than us, and though it may have the form of human, it is completely and wholly other, and naturally, they were terrified. They were terrified of this person walking on the sea. Yet, Jesus speaks to them. And see, Jesus didn't, they didn't call for Jesus. Why? You don't call ghosts, <laughs> okay? You run from them. Um, and, 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 but Jesus sees that they're terrified. Even though he meant to just walk straight by them, and he goes to them, he speaks peace to them, he gets in their boat, he calms the sea, and I love the word Mark uses here. They were utterly astounded. Yes, correct. They did not know how to capture this. They did not know how to communicate this. And in, in the middle of all of this, they were utterly astounded, and they did, but Mark says they did not understand, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. You see, these men saw the actions of Jesus, and by his actions, by seeing this man who's walking on the sea, they, they saw something. They saw Jesus as something completely distant and wholly other. Something that has no business being in the sphere of man, something that is completely distant. And while Jesus is completely different, 
While Jesus is wholly other than us, he is not distant from us. And Jesus is not neutral to the cries of his people. And he is not something unknowable. Why did these disciples say it was a ghost? Because they would, you don't know that kind of thing. You don't know how men walk on the water. You don't know how these spirits work. But the disciples saw the actions of Jesus and assumed he was something that could not be understood. They saw Jesus as something weird, unknowable, and ultimately irrelevant to their current circumstance. They're in the middle of a storm. They see a ghost and they're terrified. That doesn't help them in their storm. But Jesus is not something different. He's not something unknowable. And he's certainly not a ghost. Lastly, the final wrong view of Jesus we see um, in Mark 6, 53 through 56. Um, When they had crossed over, so they finish, Jesus gets in the boat. You can imagine what the boat ride would be for the remaining half of that journey. Like, would it have just been, like, this is me going off script. Would they be talking like, hey, Jesus, how was that walking on the water business? Or would they just be, like, dead silent? That's what dead silence sounds like. Um, I like things my brain wants to ask when we get to heaven. And so they make it to the other side, and they come to the land at Gennesaret, Gennesaret um, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the, the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran the, about the whole region and began bringing the sick people on their beds to which wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in the villages or cities or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they implored him that they might touch even a fringe of his garment, and as many who touched it were made well. So Jesus makes it to the other side of the lake, and and people start swarming. And not only do they swarm, they, they, they run to Jesus, and then like bees who found the food, they go back to the hive and they get their sick and they get their dying and they get their diseased and they bring them to Jesus. And wherever Jesus goes, people are bringing these people to him to touch the fringe of his garment. Now, why? Why are they doing that? Because Jesus has a track record of healing people. And we just read earlier in Mark that, that the woman who, who, who is bleeding, Jesus, she, 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 excuse me, she touched Jesus' cloak. That's why, see, they're they're looking for a fringe. All she did was touch Jesus' cloak, and she was healed. And so these people are swarming Jesus, wanting this, because word has gotten out about this man. Jesus does the action of healing. And yet, the greatest need of these people was not to have their remedies made well, but to have their hearts made well. They saw Jesus as just this healer as this great health care system. And they brought people to Jesus not to hear him, not to be transformed by him, not to worship him. They brought him to Jesus to make their problems go away while being blind of their greatest problem. Okay? So three wrong views of Jesus. Not the right king, not the right different, not the right healer. Now I want us to hold two things together here. Okay? So the first thing I want us to hold together, in this reality of wrong views of Jesus, I want to hold the reality that we as humans can easily look at Jesus, see Jesus, and miss the point. We can easily look at Jesus and miss the point. I mean, the people in this story have seen Jesus do things that we've never seen, right? How many of you guys have seen Jesus touch somebody with leprosy, see their their, their skin restored and made perfectly well? 
How many of you have seen Jesus bring a lame man into your midst who has been lame from birth, touch him, and see this man miraculously jump to life? We haven't. How many of you have seen Jesus take a few loaves and a couple fish and feed 20,000 people with it? We have not. They saw his miracles. They heard his preaching. They witnessed his healings. And yet Jesus, at different points in the Gospel of Mark, marveled at the, the unbelief of the crowds. He marveled at their hard-heartedness. And you see, if these crowds were around today, um, they would be the people who have had, maybe you've heard this phrase, some sort of God experience. I heard that once. Um, a lady who had been involved with Christianity at one point, somebody was talking to her, um, and she said, you know, I'm just not as religious as I used to be. Like, I still have my God experiences every now and then where I know he's real and I know he's near, but, you know, I don't really go to church or, or read my Bible or anything. And Paul warns of this type of person in 2 Timothy um, 3, verse 5, where he says this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. You see, they look like they know Jesus because they testify to some power or some experience or something they've felt at a certain point. But in that experience, they don't truly realize the power of Jesus. They don't truly realize the saving divinity of Jesus. They just want the flash. They just want the surface things. They want the glamour. They want the experiential. They want the excitement. They saw the power of Jesus firsthand, yet their hearts were hardened to the reality of who Jesus was. They saw more than Jesus than you will ever see, and yet they missed the point of his actions. They missed it. That's the crowd. And then there are the disciples. Who are the disciples, right? We could talk about the crowds. The crowds missed it. Well, the crowds, the crowds weren't called by name by Jesus to follow him. The crowds weren't selected by the creator of the universe to follow him. They weren't given private teaching by Jesus. They didn't get special access into Jesus' life. They weren't charged with the unique task of carrying Jesus' mission before him. They didn't witness his power and glory like the disciples did. And even those disciples, those privileged disciples, they missed the point. Isn't that scary? And think about it. In this narrative, who is it who would have the clearest picture of Jesus? The disciples. Not only did they, like the crowd, see, they knew Jesus better than you'll know Jesus. They saw his habits. They saw him talk. They had a friendship with Jesus that, that we, not having Jesus present with us, won't know. And yet they misunderstood Jesus. Their hearts did not grasp Jesus. And this is the second time in the book of Mark when we've seen Jesus describe the hearts of the disciples as hardened. And in Greek, so here's where people fall asleep, but this is interesting. There's only like two things I've learned in Greek, and this is one of them. Um, Greek, the, the case of hardened, is, is, it's called, if you're a nerd, it's called the perfect case. And what it means is it's a past action which has a present, uh, a present reality. And so what that means, which says they were hardened, Mark is saying the, the disciples' hearts have been hardened. It's not that they, in that moment, became hard. They were working with hardened hearts. So that means the entire time these disciples were with Jesus, they had hard hearts. Their hearts were hardened. It was a continuation of a hardness of heart. The hardening is nothing new. Their hearts have always been hardened. And here, 
in the midst of a miracle, their hearts were still hard. Why is this important for us, okay? Why is this important for us? This is why. The issue, we just saw that with all three of those things, stems from a wrong heart. A wrong heart desire. And if our hearts could be convinced by Jesus, wouldn't the crowds and the disciples have been convinced? You see, if our hearts, if the hardness of our heart is really just a stubbornness, just a stubbornness to believe Jesus, just there, there might be better preferences, and if Jesus could just prove that he was God, wouldn't the crowds and the disciples have been the first to have been convinced? They saw more than we'll ever see firsthand. They witnessed it. John opens up his gospel with that which we have looked at, that which we have touched, that which we have seen. We proclaim to you. These guys were eyewitnesses to it. But the works of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus, the power of Jesus didn't convince them. It didn't. That's because our hearts aren't convinced by Christ. Our hearts are changed by Christ. Your heart cannot be convinced because it's not just stubborn. Your heart is dead. And that's the second thing I want us to hold in tension. The first is that we can look at Jesus and so easily miss the point. The second thing is, is how gracious God is to those who have hard hearts. How gracious God is to those who have hard hearts. I mean, what would you do if you were Jesus? Okay? Put on your Jesus hat. Most of us wear that hat daily because we think we're Jesus, but we're not. Um, put on your Jesus hat, okay? And, and what would you do here? You've come to save a people who you know are dying because they have bad hearts. They have sinful, dead, rebellious hearts. And you came to save them from that. And yet all these people keep coming to you. They're not interested in worshiping you. They're not interested in repenting of their sin. They're not interested in entering into a great theological dialogue. They're just like, heal, 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 heal. Do your tricks, Jesus. Wave your hands. Make us better. I mean, if I was Jesus, you know what I would do? I'd just stop healing people because I'm a jerk. I'm like, no, don't you see you're missing the point? It's not about healing. No more healing. Done. But did you see what Jesus did? Look back at Mark uh, 6, 56. And wherever he came, in the villages, cities, or countrysides. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even a fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. You see, Jesus moved towards, moved towards those who are lost with grace and with patience. In the face of a hard heart, Jesus doesn't turn from those people, but he enters into their midst patiently, graciously, and with healing. Additionally, Jesus' own disciples miss the point. Jesus is going to use these guys to build his church, to carry his cause, and he just fed 5,000. He just announced he is the bread of life. He just walked on water. He just calmed the storm. But look at what Mark said about the disciples. Verse 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. They were dumbfounded. They didn't know what to think. They didn't know what to say, for they did not understand about the loaves. So they don't understand moving back, but their hearts were hardened. They're dumb. They don't get it. If this was my A team, if this was my group of go to guys, I'm starting over. 
Well, how, how much more vocal do I have to be? But, but did you see what Jesus did? Verses 50 and 51. For they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately, to counter their terror, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. You see, in the face of the disciples' terror, uncertainty, and fear of death, Jesus spoke to them the reality of who he was, and he got in their boat. You see, even for us, if, if, if the crowd represents those who are not Christians, the disciples have to represent those who are Christian, even to us who are slow of heart, who miss the point, who are nearest to Jesus, yet still mess up in our faith and in our actions, Jesus is more than on your side. He's in your boat. Jesus is not distant. Jesus is not far off. Jesus is not, is not angered at your hardness of heart like an evil dictator. But Jesus is speaking the truth of his existence into this present moment right now for your good. But see, the greatest peace these people needed to know was not, I'm Jesus, I've come to calm the storm. The greatest peace they needed to know is that's Jesus. That's God. You see, the God who is incredibly separate from his people, holy other, holy separate, has drawn near to them in patience through Jesus Christ. Now, when I started this message, I made a statement that we can know Jesus by his actions, but we can only understand Jesus through his actions. And this is what I mean by this, okay? Now, stay with me. The chief action of Jesus is his death on the cross. We've seen Jesus heal. We've seen Jesus preach. We've seen Jesus do miracles. But the chief action, the ultimate action of Jesus is his death on his cross. And that action of Jesus dying on the cross, not only proves to us that Jesus is the Christ, but it enables us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Because we have a heart problem. Like we've just seen, no amount of proof will ever be able to, to loose the chains of sin on your heart. It won't. Jesus could walk in here right now and say, hey guys, look at the holes in my hand, see me, I rose again, I'm alive, I'm Jesus, I'm Lord. And he can do that, and there will be people in this room who won't believe because it's not a matter of proof that brings us to believe in Jesus. It's a matter of Jesus dying on the cross to kill our heart of unbelief that allows us to believe in Jesus. Through the cross, Jesus kills your sin. He removes your dead heart of stone. And he gives you a heart which can be true to Jesus. Which can see Jesus for what he truly is. Jesus' death on the cross is the enabling action which grants us the ability to see Christ rightly. Only through Jesus on the cross are we able to see who Jesus really is and understand it. You see, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church, and he's discussing why. We just saw at the beginning of this text, Jesus is removing his disciples because there are Jews, there are people who know the Old Testament who don't see that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't see him as the Lord that they need, and Paul is writing about this. Why don't they see that? Why don't they understand that? And he starts referencing Moses. Moses was a prophet in the Old Testament. And, and Moses, um, like all of us, like even the disciples who, who missed the point, whose hearts were hardened, they wanted, he wanted to see God. So he says, God, I'm leading your people, and they are hard-hearted, and they are stubborn, and they are rebellious. Just show me who you are. Show me your face, God. 
And God's like, well, you'll die if you see my face because I'm bigger and better than you. Um, so I'll be nice and I'll show you my back. And so Moses like wedges himself between two rocks so he doesn't get like blown away by the radiance of God's glory. Um, and God passes by with his back. And Moses' face lights up like Christmas. It's radiating the glory of God. Now, what we know, and we saw it with Jesus, he's, he's different than us. He's holy. He's pure. He's perfect. Sin doesn't work in the presence of, of holiness. Sin dies. Holiness wins. Sin burns. Fire and gasoline, okay? And so God looks at Moses, who just saw Jesus or saw God, and a right view of God physically for Moses changed his dispensation. He's glowing like Rudolph. And God says, listen, Moses, before you go down the mountain, put a veil on your face. Cover your face. Why? For two reasons. One, the leader of Israel coming off a mountain with a glowing face could be creepy to some people. Secondly, God's holiness and glory, he wasn't ready for Israel to see yet. His glory was veiled to them. And so Paul is picking up on this story um, in 2 Corinthians 3.14. And knowing this story, look at what Paul says about those people who have a wrong view of Jesus. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, right? These are people who read the Old Covenant, who see Jesus in one sense, who read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. You see, Christ removes the veil from our hearts. Christ is the corrective lens which grants us the ability to see him rightly and respond rightly. Why did the disciples struggle so much with belief? Because they didn't have the enabling portrait of Christ that we as New Testament believers have. They didn't see the cross yet. They didn't see that Jesus had come to change their hearts by dying in their place, by absorbing God's wrath. But we have seen that. And in Colossians, Paul is again speaking to the nature of Christ. And look at what he says. Again, pay attention to the prepositions, okay? It's like grammar in here. Pay attention to the prepositions. Verses 19 through 22. For in him, that's Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? We talked about that. Jesus is God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. You see, we cannot, understand simply, we cannot understand Jesus by simply looking at his actions as passive observers. We can only understand Jesus when he has brought us through his actions on the cross. You can't know Jesus from a distance. You can't know Jesus by being by him. You can only truly understand Jesus when he has brought you through redemption on the cross. Through the cross, we are made right before God. Through the cross, we see Christ rightly. Through the cross, we're able to find true peace because in the face of adversity or trial, we can look at Christ. And we don't simply see a military king or a ghost or a magician, but we look at Christ and we can say, I know who you are. I know why you've come, and I know what you did. And that realization of being brought through Christ's redemption enables us to live in light of a right view of Christ. And for those of you in here who are non-Christians, I want you to see the story of these people who so blatantly missed the point. And I want you to see that God is gracious and winsome to those who are dead in sin. 
You see, Jesus, as I said, would have been right in completely writing off these people. Yet Jesus was gracious, he was patient, and he was kind. And maybe there are people in here who are like, man, I, I can almost see that. I'm, I can see what you're saying, right? You're, you're like the people who can see Jesus by his actions. I can see. I'm not dumb, Tyler. I see what you're talking about. I hear what you're saying. You're saying Jesus is God. You're saying I have a sinful heart. And I can almost believe it, but I can't fully accept it. To you, I say, keep coming and trust that Jesus is gracious to change that heart. Know that I can't convince you. My message can't convince you. The worship psalms can't convince you. Your community group leader can't convince you. We can only give you to a faithful Jesus and trust that through his work on a cross, he will change your heart. Keep fighting for that belief and know that no one who comes to Christ will be turned away because Christ is merciful. Come to Christ. Seek Christ. For those of you who are Christian, I want you to realize the miracle of understanding Christ through his actions. Okay? I want you to be amazed at this because what we just saw, the only way you can see Christ as Savior, and not as some random crazy person like these unbelievers do, not as this, this nice moral teacher or this fable to control the masses, the only way you're able to see Christ as truly your Savior is not because you had an epiphany. It's not because you had a God experience. It's not because you're smarter than everyone and you read the Bible and discerned that Jesus is the only way. The only way you see Jesus rightly is because Jesus reached out, grabbed you by your dying wrist, and pulled you through from death to life by the cross. Don't move past that. The idea that you see Jesus as something worthy of worship increases our worship because the only way you see that rightly is because of the weight of Jesus' sacrifice. Belief is a miracle. Correct vision is a miracle. And he's given that to his people. What a gift. Even as Jesus' people, we see that with the disciples, don't assume what God has done in your life. Don't let it become casual knowledge that Jesus has forgiven your sin, but embrace it. And the realization of who Jesus is, it shapes so much more than your answers on a theology exam. Everybody right now, if walking out the door, I had an exam, I said, who is Jesus? You would be able to say, Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior. He's come to save my sin. But a true realization of who Jesus is, a realization created by um, coming through Jesus' actions doesn't just shape how you view God. It shapes how you view yourself. It shapes how you process your surroundings. It shapes how you view your purpose. You are one who has been bought by Christ and forgiven by his cross. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful ground for worship and evangelism. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, so many times in the book of Mark, you present yourself as God, you present yourself as Savior, and, and, and in this text, there is nothing more you want us to know than to know you rightly, not by being a passive observer, not by being distant, but by being brought together by your cross. So Lord, I pray in this place, you strip away our false views of God, you strip away our comfort of understanding Jesus according to the parameters we set. And I pray you allow us to, to know Jesus by the parameters you set on the cross. A Savior dying in place of the sinful. 
And Lord, I pray that that strikes us like a gong so that we resonate so deeply and so vibrantly in our culture here at the University of Montana because we have seen God rightly. We have seen Jesus personally and we've been brought through from death to life by his work on the cross. Give us eyes to see, hearts to know, and hands that do. Thank you for being gracious, Jesus. Amen.